Open your Bibles up to Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. This is going to be a great, great study together. I'm really looking forward to it. We overviewed it last week. Kind of got a, did a flyover and got a general feel for the book, how it's put together. This morning we're going to begin to dig in to it. And there is much for us here, much very profitable things for us here. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1. Let me just go ahead and read that for you. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 for this morning. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul introduces this letter in the way that is common and typical of letters in the first century, and that is that he immediately identifies himself as the writer, he calls out who the recipients are, and he, he gives them a greeting. When we correspond, we correspond a little bit differently. We wait until the end of the letter to identify who we are uh, that is sending that letter, but for them in their culture, it was to identify these things right up front. And so this is a typical greeting to a first century letter. And because it's a typical greeting, it would be very easy to just sort of pass over it. In fact, I dare say that for many of us in our reading of the New Testament, that we don't spend very much time considering and thinking about the greetings of those letters. I think it's probably common for us to read it quickly and then seek to get into the real meat of the letter, right? I mean, who cares about the dear so-and-so part of the letter, right? Let's get to the real stuff. But this morning, I, wanna, I want to stop and I want to begin to, to look at this greeting because I think there's something here for us. I think it's worth the pause to unpack it a little bit and see what is really uh, being conveyed by this most typical of Pauline greetings. Let me ask you a question, just as we're getting started here together this morning, let me ask you a question. Have you ever grown discouraged in ministry? Have you ever been discouraged? You know, you're involved in various ministry in the church, or maybe even outside the church, and, and you just get, your, you get discouraged. Have you ever felt like stepping back or stepping down, taking a long vacation, perhaps, getting a break from it all. Have you, have you ever felt that? I know you have. I know you have. And the reason I know you have is because sometimes you do just that. And it's not uncommon to have those feelings. It's not uncommon at all to, to, to feel fatigued, to, to be discouraged, to, to want a break. Sometimes when we're involved in, in an active gospel ministry, where, where we're speaking to either coworkers or family members or, or friends or, or whatever, where we're constantly involved in trying to speak the gospel to people, it feels like we're speaking to a brick wall. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like, man, nothing is penetrating here? I talk and we're just not connecting. 
They're not listening. They're disregarding me. When things like that happen, and, and they happen to all of us at various times, there is a, there is a tendency to want to wanna just sort of chuck it, take a break. But, beloved, we need to hang tough. We need to hang tough. And, and that's what I see in these first two verses of this letter. What I find in these two, first two verses of this letter are some foundational statements. Some foundational statements that we dare not lose sight of. So that we will hang tough in ministry. God would want that of us. And there's some really important things here as we look at these verses together that will help us to hang tough. The first truth, the first foundational statement is that we need to be reminded of the source of our authority. We need to be reminded, and and I would say we need to be often reminded of the source of our true authority. I think all of us feel the weight of the Great Commission, don't we? I think we, we understand that Jesus would have us preaching the gospel, making disciples in the world. I, I think we all feel that. And I think we all know the frustration and the, and the sense of failure that often comes when, when we don't carry through, we don't follow through on, on that which we know we should be doing. We feel a certain sense of guilt, perhaps, that, man, that that was an opportunity, and I missed it again. You know, you're standing around with a group of friends at school, maybe, and they're they're talking about, you know, religious things, and and one person has given their opinion about this, and and someone else has given their opinion about that, and everybody seems fine with, with, you know, all of these conflicting and contrary opinions. And, and, and then you open your mouth or, or try to open your mouth, and it's like everybody turns on you. They don't want your opinion. They don't think your opinion is valid at all. In fact, in fact they don't think you have anything to say. And sometimes it can get pretty ugly, that whole process. And the reason is, is because what we have to say is so countercultural. What we have to say doesn't fit in with all of the rest of their opinions because their religious opinions, they can kind of fit them together. But when we preach the gospel, it doesn't fit together with anything else. Because we speak a message of, of exclusivity, we speak a message that's incompatible with all other religious expressions. We speak as, as one who claims to have entire truth, the only truth, the true truth, before which all other claims of truth have to bow. And so I know it happens. Often we don't say anything at all. Often we don't say anything rather than get into it with them, right? We just don't say anything. Put on your thinking caps for a minute here and 
Think about the Apostle Paul. Paul is writing a letter here to a church or, or group of churches comprised of people that have been steeped in paganism. People who for millennia have believed that, that, that gods inhabit the, the trees and the stones and the sky and the, and the sun and the water and, and you name it. And they've been involved in all kinds of, of vile and wicked practices. And he's going to write them and, and he's going to speak to them and tell them that, that that's got to stop. He's going to speak about the one true God to them and what he has done. And, and, he's, and he's going to speak in such a way that, that all of their backgrounds, all of their opinions, all of the conflicting truth claims that are, that are swirling around in their culture are all going to have to give way. There's no way to blend it together. There's, there's no way to fit it together. They've got to reject all of it and listen only to what he has to say. Well, you're going to take that kind of approach. You, you want to be pretty sure about your authority, don't you? I mean, those kinds of statements, those kinds of truth claims, they've got to be rooted in something more than just my personal opinion or my personal experience. You know, this is what God did, it, did for me. There's no, there's no authority in that. So notice how Paul begins this letter. Paul, he identifies himself. An apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Do you see that? He begins immediately by, by making a, an authority statement, uh, laying a foundation, really, for everything else that's going to come afterwards. It's all grounded here. It's, it's grounded here, really, in a, in a twofold declaration of authority. There are, there are two big ideas in this short little clause. Both of which are, are huge and, and significant in laying that foundation for the, for the kind of authoritative statements that are going to follow. I mean, he is going to talk about what God has done before the foundation of the world. Now, that would be a pretty presumptuous kind of statement, wouldn't it? If you were, if you were sucking it out of your thumb or drawing it out of your own personal experience. So he identifies himself, Paul, an apostle. He begins like that. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. That's the first authority statement. That's the, that's the first important foundational statement here for what's going to come. An apostle. Now that's word apostle, the Greek word apostle, it comes from the verb uh, apostello, which means to, to send. It means to send. The noun form of it here, apostle, it carries the idea of sent one or messenger. 
So we were to render it. You know, this is a Greek word that's just, that's just transliterated and brought into the English. If we were to render it in English, if we were to translate it, it would be, it would be Paul, a messenger of Christ Jesus, or, or Paul, a sent one of Christ Jesus. That would be a, more of a translation rather than a, than a transliteration. Now, this is a very important word in the New Testament. It occurs all over the place. And it's used in a number of different ways in the New Testament. And I think it's worth identifying how it's used so that we understand how Paul is using it. The most common use of this this term, apostle, is is a reference to the twelve. Those 12 men that, have been, that were chosen had been chosen by Jesus to, to go out and to preach. Most often when you come across the word, that's what it's a reference to, the 12. Now inherent in the word itself, the idea of sent one or messenger, is, a, is the idea of authenticity and authority. If someone sends you, then, then the authority goes with you from the one who sent you. You carry it forward with you. It's interesting. Jesus is called an apostle. Did you know that? In the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 1, Jesus is called an apostle. Now, that's not the reference to the, to the 12, to be sure. But it carries the idea of a messenger or a sent one. He was sent from God the Father. As I say, the most common use of it is the 12, those appointed by Christ, right? Matthew chapter 10, verses 2 and following, he speaks of the 12 that Jesus appointed to go out and preach the gospel of the kingdom for him, to widen his ministry. And he gave them all kinds of authority, right? Even, even to raise the dead. When Judas betrayed his unbelief and ended up hanging himself, According to Acts chapter 1, a, a, a new a replacement for him so that the 12 would remain 12 was chosen in a man by the name of Matthias. And they lay out there in Acts chapter 1 the, the requirement to become one of the 12. And it was simply this. You had to be with Jesus from the moment of his baptism all the way through his ascension. And so thus you could be his witness to the resurrected Christ. So Matthias fills in for Judas and completes the twelve. Who will reign over, Jesus says in Matthew 19, the the twelve tribes of Israel, right? One apostle each reigns over one of the different twelve tribes. Others are called apostles in the New Testament. Barnabas is called an apostle. James, the Lord's brother, is called an apostle. Apollos. Silvanus and, and even Titus are called apostles. They're not part of the twelve, though. I suspect that they were ones that were likely endowed with the gift of apostleship that, that Paul references here in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11. It speaks of a gift of apostleship. And finally, there's Paul himself. Now, Paul doesn't meet the qualifications of the twelve. He wasn't with Jesus from his baptism all the way through his ascension, right? Paul is this unique man. 
He is an apostle with, with authority equal to the twelve, but, but he has been called in a different way. He, he says himself, I am, I am like one born out of time. Jesus appears to him directly, commissions him, trains him, sends him forth. Paul makes these claims for himself in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, for example. There's no, no question that he claims to be an apostle. He says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 1, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? The answer is yes. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, where he, he deals with this, And he says, verse 8, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and I'm not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. I am what I am. By the way, when he says here that um, uh, last of all, he appeared to me, that's the last time Jesus in his resurrected body ever appeared to any man. That's kind of what Paul's indicating there. That's it. That's it. So Paul makes this claim to himself, back to Ephesians 1, that he is an apostle, meaning he has the authority of the other 12 to speak for Christ. Because he's an apostle and because he speaks for Christ, People are obligated to, to hear what he has to say and to believe it and to act upon it. Paul equates his very own words with, with Scripture. It's interesting. In, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13, Paul says, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. So Paul says, when I speak to you, I speak to you as Christ himself, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, beloved, we, uh, we have his word, do we not? We have what he spoke. And, and why that's so significant for, for you and me is, is because what it means is we have, we also have a derived authority. We have behind us the, the authority of the Apostle Paul who speaks for Christ Jesus. When we speak forth from the Scriptures themselves. In the Old Testament, when the prophets would speak, they would say, Thus says the Lord, right? And when they said, Thus says the Lord. There was an obligation for the hearer to, to receive that, to believe that, and to act on that. You have in your hands all that you need to say, thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. 
That is absolutely huge. When you find yourself involved in a discussion about religion and what does God expect and and what is reality all about. We must never, ever abandon the only source of authority that we have, the very Word of God, the words of the apostles. But secondly, notice Paul just doesn't leave it there. He says, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. By the will of God. What does that mean? What it means is, is, is that being an apostle was not Paul's idea. Paul didn't wake up one morning and say, what do I want to do the rest of my life? I got it. I'm going to be an apostle. How far from reality is that, right? We're, we're talking here about a man who, who hated God in his work through his son, Jesus Christ, who, who opposed it, who, who sought to, to punish and, and destroy the work of Christ. You know the story. He was on his way to Damascus, right? To extradite those believers there and, and bring them back to Jerusalem to, to punish them and, and force them to blaspheme and, and renounce their attachment to Jesus Christ. And along the way, without asking his permission, without informing ahead of time that there's going to be this encounter, right? Christ appears to him on the road to Damascus and blows him out of the saddle and blinds him. And says to him, you are my chosen servant. You will take my word and you will preach it to kings and Gentiles. And you will suffer for doing it. That's not a negotiated job description. You know what I'm saying? You're not sitting down with your boss and kind of working this out. Hey, you know what? I'm good at this, and I'm not so good at that. Let's see if we can work something out here. Right? Boom! This is what you're going to do. That's what you're going to do. Paul never got over that reality. Paul never in his life got over the reality that, that God is the one who seized upon him. He says it that way in Galatians chapter 1. He says it that way in, in 1 Corinthians 15. He, he says it repeatedly. He repeats the story three times in the book of Acts. He gives the narrated account of, his, of, of Christ saving him and commissioning him to go out. Never got over it. His entire life was turned upside down. Well, that's him. How does that relate to me? Never been blown out of the saddle on the way to Damascus. Never even been to Damascus. Well, beloved, the significance of it to you and to me is is that you also were blown out of the saddle, at least figuratively speaking. 
If you are a a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, it's not because you set some appointment with God. You sat down and negotiated something. God seized upon you without your permission in the time and nature of his own choosing. I mean, that's exactly what Paul says here. Just let your eye go down a little bit here into verse 4 of the same chapter where he says, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Before God laid the foundation of this world in place, before he spoke it into existence, God sovereignly chose who will be his. And he did so, by the way, without any regard for for personal merit. All right, chapter 2, verse 9. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. God did not look down the corridor of time and think that you're a pretty good guy and I think I'll take you. All right, it's not like choosing up a, a Sandlot baseball team. Right, I'll take him, I'll take him, you know what I'm saying, and then there's the last guy. You have been the last guy? I've been the last guy. It's uncomfortable. Particularly when they take the girl before they take you, right? It's really uncomfortable. God doesn't look and see who we are and what we are. And, you know, I want him on my team. God, just like he chose Paul, chose you. Well, what does that mean? What it means is that you're a child of God by the choice of God. And so that puts you in, a, in this situation of, a, of authority because you can speak on behalf of the living God. You have his word and you are his child. You know him. And so you may speak for him. You have a supernatural calling, an authoritative message. And that's how we are to engage with the world. That's how we're to engage. The first foundational statement that's critical for us to hang tough in ministry is to to be reminded of the source of our authority. Second, we need to recognize the strength of our opposition. We need to recognize the strength of our opposition. I mean, at first blush, you might think, well, this is, shouldn't be too bad. I mean, I have this God-given authority, right? I'm his child. He's chosen me. Spirit is within me. Paul says over in Romans 1.16, the the gospel that I have is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also for the Greek. But it's not that easy, is it? It's not that easy. 
In fact, what we know is that is there is all kinds of opposition, both external and internal. We're constantly battling opposition from within and without. Look how Paul addresses his audience here, verse 1. To the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Just concentrate for a moment on that at Ephesus. Now, I know we said last week, you know, it's possible that that's not original, and it is indeed possible. Possible that this is a circular letter. And I readily grant that. Even if it is a circular letter. That means there are other circular letters that are coming, like the letter to the church at Colossae which deal with all other kinds of pagan problems. So we don't escape. So for the sake of argument this morning, I'm going to assume that it's at Ephesus is part of the text. At Ephesus. Why is that important? Well, it's important because these people are living next door to hell. In Acts 19, Paul talks about the occult, right? When when the message is brought, I said Paul's Luke. When Luke narrates the account of Paul there in Ephesus in his three-year ministry, and he is teaching and laboring away with the gospel, and it says many are saved out of the occult, such that they burn their, their magic books, whose price totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. That's at least $5 million U.S. We are talking about a massive library of occult materials, magic books, spells, all kinds of dark and wicked things. And Paul watches in there, and, and, and they're proclaiming the gospel, and, and they're being violently opposed. Violently opposed. I mean, the opposition is massive, right? They, they, they enter into to the, to the auditorium there, it says, and as I told you last week, 24,000-seat auditorium, and, and for two hours they're screaming, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! That's nuts. That's hard for us to imagine. That kind of of passion and commitment to darkness and evil. Beloved, sin does not easily yield itself. Not at the societal level, nor at the individual level. There is great opposition. Great opposition, and we need to be honest about that. We need to be honest. We need to be honest with ourselves, and we need to be honest with our children as we're, as we're bringing them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and we need to be honest with those that we're sending out into the mission field. That it's going to be hard, and there's going to be great opposition. They're not going to roll over. They're not going to say, where have you been all my life? 
Right? The Philippian jailers are few and far between. And if it wasn't enough, there's the old baggage in our own hearts that we carry around, right? There's the only internal opposition we have to the gospel. It's our doubts, it's our fears. It's our own pride, it's our own selfishness. It's our own desire for for comfort, for pleasure. I mean, all of these things are warring with us and, and at us. And so there is opposition everywhere. I mean, you can get really impatient and angry and frustrated seeking to do the Lord's will. Did you know that? Thank you. One honest individual in the crowd. (laughs) Tar out our own sin. Beloved, we're like Paul. We're we're surrounded. We've got enemies on every side. Enemies without and enemies within. (laughs) We're our own enemy. Perverse culture. Demonic forces energizing those in opposition to Christ, right? Paul talks about that here in chapter 6 of this letter, right? Where he says that, that we don't struggle against flesh and blood, but we, but we struggle against the demonic realm. Right? Our battle is spiritual, we noted last time. I mean, this could be depressing. This could be really depressing. Because the opposition is strong. Intense. And yet in the, in the midst of it, uh, there's this hope that I, that, that I want to see. I want you to see here in, in just the two little words, that, two little expressions. Where he, notice he says to the saints. You see that? That word saints. There's so much hope in that word. Saints. Hagios, literally holy ones. To the holy ones who are at Ephesus, he says. And by the way, this, um, this expression, the holy ones or, or saints, this is, this is customary for Paul. This is common for Paul to address believers in churches as holy ones. In fact, the, the place where it stands out the most is in his letters to the church at Corinth. Because if any church was unholy, it was the church at Corinth, right? And yet Paul calls them in both 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, he calls them saints. Holy ones. Holy ones. Now the antecedent to this term lies with Israel. Israel herself. God called Israel to himself and set her apart as a holy nation. Exodus chapter 19 and verse 6, he says, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You read the Old Testament, right? And, and you read about Israel and you kind of observe they don't look very holy. But they are. But they are. One writer says, like ancient Israel, quote, Christians are saints, 
not in the sense that they are very pious people, but because of the new relationship they have been brought into by God. It is not because of their own doing or good works, but on account of what Christ has done. The opposition is massive here, but if you are believing on the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, then you are a saint. You are a holy one. Now, how can that be? The answer to that is found in the second expression here, at the end of the, of the verse, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. And that's what I want you to see, that in Christ Jesus. That's how you are a holy one. This phrase, in Christ Jesus, is the very heart of Paul's understanding of what it means to be a Christian. It speaks of our union with Jesus Christ as a result of our being incorporated into him. We are in union with Christ. We are in Christ. In Christ. This union with Christ is the source of all of our spiritual blessings, and it is the direct result of God's electing love. Look at verse 3 here, chapter 1. Paul's going to get into it, and we'll get into it next week. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. The result of God's placing us in Christ is that we now share the righteousness of Christ. We are now connected to God himself. By the way, this theme is so significant to this letter here. And I didn't count them up, but one writer says that this concept of union with Christ, being in Christ, is spoken of more times in this letter than in anywhere else in the New Testament. And it's referred to 36 times in this six-chapter letter alone. 36 times Paul speaks of our union with Christ, of being in Christ. So this morning, there's no way we're going to resolve it. You just have to write this down. Being in Christ means that you are in union with Christ. You have been incorporated into Christ. Just write that down. And over the weeks and months to come, we will tease out the reality and implications of what all that means. Because, beloved, there is nothing more glorious than that, to be in Christ. And there is nothing more horrifying than to not be in Christ. Because the difference is heaven and hell. How does this Amazing transformation occur? How does it happen that we become in Christ? It's through the preaching of the gospel. It's through the preaching of the gospel. And, and this, is the, is, this is the 
third foundational reality that we need to hang on to here in order to hang tough in ministry. And it's this, we need to reaffirm the substance of our message. Reaffirm the substance of our message. Right? We need to be reminded of the source of our authority. We need to recognize the strength of our opposition. Third, and finally, we need to reaffirm the substance of our message. God provides what we cannot. God provides what we cannot. We, what we offer the world originates not with us, but with God. It originates with God. And why that's so significant is, is because that it's therefore not limited by human strength or frailty or weakness. We're not offering the world our wisdom. We're not offering the world our religious experience. We're not offering the world you know, our philosophical system of how to make reality fit together, how to answer questions. The deep questions like, who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? What's it all about? What happens when I die? Look what Paul says, verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the substance of our message, beloved? It is twofold. It is grace and it is peace. That is the message we bring to the world, a message the world desperately needs to hear. Desperately needs to hear. Grace is God's unmerited and undeserved favor in providing salvation to sinners through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 7. In Him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. The world has a message of try harder. That's the message of the world. When you break it on down, try harder, believe more deeply. Give up this. Give up that. And maybe, just maybe, you'll be okay. The message of the gospel is that God in grace has reached out to you. He has reached out to you. And that He is going to deal with your sin. By accounting it to his own son who died to take the penalty. And he's going to transfer to you the righteousness of his very own son. You see what a different message that is? It's night and day. It's it's life and death. Over in Romans chapter 3, verse 23 and 24, Paul speaks of the same thing. He says, For for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace. We have the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. 
It is the grace of God. But, but here it gets even better. It is not just, our message is not just, God will save you by grace and then leave you to work it all out on your own. To struggle on your own, to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. No. The message is, God is is grace from beginning to end. He will save you by His grace, and He will sustain you through His grace. And through His grace, He makes every provision necessary for you to live a life pleasing to Him. To act out the reality that you are His child. That message is so liberating. Liberating. We do not live under the bondage of of all of the things we have to do, right? The gospel message is not about what I do. It is about what God has done. It is God's grace from beginning to end. And it is through God's grace that we are empowered and called to live a transformed ethic. Yes, we are to live on a different moral plane. Yes, we have different values in the rest of the world. Yes, we're expected to live according to our new nature in Christ. Yes. But not by the power of our own will. Not by the strength of our own character. Not by the the rules and the regulations that we impose upon ourselves. It's as we believe the truth of the gospel of who we are in Christ and then begin to act in accordance with who we really are. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. The grace of God has appeared. What is the substance of our message? It is a message of grace, not works. Not self-effort. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't end there. Because the grace of God yields peace with God. This is where it's really cool. Right? Take a look at Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, Paul says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. In other words, having been justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and His finished work, God is no longer angry with you. That's our message. It's not about how I feel towards God. Because you know what? It's really not a problem how I feel towards God. What is an eternal problem is how God feels towards me. That's the issue. And God is angry with sinners. All the time, angry with sinners. Paul will say here in chapter 2, they are children of wrath. 
all who are born of Adam have a gigantic problem. And the gigantic problem is that their creator is angry with them. And by his grace, through the gift of his son, God's anger is assuaged. On that cross, God poured out the extent of his accumulated wrath for all of his children, for all of eternity, and he poured it out on the brow of his beloved son. And Jesus drank the cup of the wrath of God to the bottom. He drank it all. He left nothing for you or me. God is now at peace with you. And the message we take into this world is, listen, friend, if you will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and receive the grace of God, that God will be at peace with you. And it doesn't end there. Because God being at peace with you results in you being at peace with other people. You see, we don't work it up from the bottom. We're not first, you know, hey, you know, you'd be a good person. Be at peace with people. You know, why can't you just get along, you know? And if, and if we live rightly, then, then maybe God will have favor on us. That is, that is the opposite of reality. The opposite, of, the, the reality is, is that while we are, we are uh, hostile towards God and God is hostile towards us, and we are living for ourselves in open and flagrant rebellion against him, he reaches out to us and blows us out of the saddle. And without consulting us and asking our permission, he rearranges reality for us. And we go from being children of wrath to his beloved sons. The fruit of which is peace with God and peace with one another, right? For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, peace. The other day I was driving along here and pulled up at a traffic light behind someone with a bumper sticker on their car that said, Visualize World Peace. Well, I can do that. Because I can visualize the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is only when that happens that there'll be world peace. Because the world knows nothing of peace. Nothing. But we do. And we have a message of peace. And it begins with being reconciled to God. By the way, these twin themes of grace and peace are all through this letter. All through this letter. This is not the last you're going to hear of this. Twelve times, Paul refers to the theme of grace in this letter. Eight times he he speaks of peace. Grace and peace, grace and peace, grace and peace. All through the letter. I think about those shepherds out there on that Galilean hillside. Or not the Galilean hillside, excuse me, the Bethlehem hillside. 
right, when the angels appear to them and, and they speak to them, right, and they say, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. In other words, among men with whom he sheds his favor, his grace. That is the message. That's the substance of our message. That's what we bring to the world. That's what we have to offer to the world. And if they're to hear it, my friends, we've got to hang tough. We have got to hang tough. We do that by being reminded of the source of our authority, recognizing the strength of the opposition, and reaffirming the substance of our message. May God enable us to profit this morning from his word. Let's pray. Our Father, it is all of you and none of us. You have made the first move. According to your inscrutable plan, laid down before the ages, that you would redeem a people for yourself, a bride for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have been about that work. And our Father, now we who, who know Christ are part of that great bride. We are in Christ. We have been united with Christ. And as a result, all the riches of Christ are ours. Yet, our Father, we confess the opposition is real in our own hearts and in the world around us. And we grow discouraged. We get tired. We want to retreat. Oh, Lord, energize us again. Remind us again. Grant us boldness again. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.